Congratulations to the Red Roses, who completed their Grand Slam in front of a record-breaking 59,000 people at Twickenham on the weekend. Today, we'll be reviewing the Champions Cup semi-finals and the structure of Irish rugby, however, with former British and Irish Lion tourist and Ireland back rower Stephen Ferris. It was a historic weekend for the Red Roses, and before we get into Champions Cup action, a huge congratulations should go out to the Red Roses for clinching the Grand Slam in a 38-33 win at Twickenham in front of nearly 59,000 people, which is a world record attendance for a standalone women's game. Um, Champions Cup semis have happened. Leinster are now set to take on La Rochelle in three weeks in Dublin in a repeat of last year's final. Our special guest today joins us to review the semis. Stephen Ferris, are you going to be in, in Dublin for that final in three weeks' time? Um, I definitely would have if Ulster had made it there, but um, I'm not sure. I think I might actually, unless I'm doing a bit of work for Heineken or something like that, I'll just be chilling out on the sofa watching it uh, like many others. But um, yeah, it should be a great occasion. I suppose a lot of the Leinster fans and I suppose the players as well had sort of targeted that home kind of run in with the, the last 16 quarterfinal, semifinal and obviously the final. So yeah, it's uh, I heard of some of the Leinster players talking after the weekend saying I think it was Josh van der Fleer saying that's the loudest he's ever heard the stadium and like you know the atmosphere was incredible and for only being what 45 or 42,000 or something in the stadium that's a pretty big statement to make I know they like to keep their fans on side but Josh is a a straight down the middle kind of character and um, yeah that's good to hear so no um, I'll, I'll wait and see if I get a bit of work before heading down to the Aviva Stadium just on that subject, then I was going to bring it up later, but obviously Leinster have ended up effectively with a home semi-final and a home final. You mentioned if the stadium really was that loud, and that's on club or international scales. But what do you make of that? That probably, you know, it's fair to say one of the two or three best teams in Europe, without doubt, is having that run-in and that advantage because it is. We both we saw two two home teams effectively win at the weekend. It is an advantage. Oh yeah, it certainly is, and um. Like uh, when you bring Leinster into the Aviva Stadium, they seem to go up another gear as well. Like I certainly feel if that game had been played in the RDS, it probably wouldn't have been the same game, or Leinster wouldn't have had as a you know cutthroat edge, ruthless streak in them. And they seem to have that at the Aviva Stadium a bit, like obviously like Ireland do as well. And we all know that many of the Leinster team are playing consistently for the Irish team, so there is that home away from home sort of feeling amongst um I suppose a lot of those Leinster players. So uh yeah it's it's a it's a huge advantage. Um like you know when you played in the old Ravenhill or Kingspan Stadium, like you know you you always backed yourself to to get a result. And I suppose Leinster are feeling exactly the same way with uh, with the the draw that they've obviously gotten. I, I'd be interested to know Stephen what um uh what what's the view of Leinster um amongst guys like yourself from other provinces? Um I mean, they, they can't move for internationals. They can't move for a big supply of, of top-end players out of the school system down around Dublin. Um, I mean, do, do you take a sort of all-Ireland pride in their achievements? Or are you more like things over here where, you know, Gloucester and Bath, for example, you know, if Bath were playing the Vladimir Putin 15, the Kings on Shed would be screaming for the Russians. Um uh, do, 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 do you take big pride in, in Leinster's achievements or do you think you're jamming gits or you've got far, far too many advantages and how the hell do you get away from it? You pay your players too much money? I don't know what your view is. Well, it's an interesting point that you finished off there with, with paying your players too much and that's certainly not the case. Um, I think, honestly, I think it was Richard Wigglesworth comments after the Leicester game sort of maybe got blown out of proportion by the media and yeah everybody says whether you're English France Crusaders whoever you are oh yeah let's just copy the Irish blueprint let's just copy this Leinster school system but the thing is you can't or many teams and many systems can't because they don't have the money these school systems are you know you've parents that go along and you know are wealthy and maybe throw 
X amount at the school every year just to have a full-time strength conditioning coach. And then like they've got all, all got directors of rugby. And like when I was at school, it was the technology teacher who was running out after the last class to put on a pair of boots and, and set up a drill for us to get going. Like these guys have their S&C in the morning before they take class. They, afterwards, they have nutritionists. They have like it's a full professional setup. And everybody goes like these young guys are stepping out of school and representing Leinster. Why? Well, hold on a second. Rewind it here. In school, it's a professional setup. They're they're all already in a professional setup. So unless you have unlimited amount of money, unlimited amount of good coaches that are going to get paid a half decent amount of money, then you know it's it's going to be hard to play catch up. But in terms of the actual players themselves, when they then integrate into Leinster, like a lot of the, the Lancer squad are on national contracts, so they're effectively paid by the RFU and not Leinster. So people are talking about, um, you know, James Lowe re-signing, and we don't know what he's, you know, signed for or whatever, but hold on. The RFU actually put Josh van der Fleer on the national contract, so that maybe then freed up a bit of cash yeah. for him. And a lot of the other guys blow them. I'd say the average salary is absolutely no more than what the average salary would be in a in a Gloucester or a Bath or a Saracens. Absolutely not. A, a lot of these young guys that are playing in the URC week in and week out are maybe on between 50 and 100 grand a year. And then you have your top Irish players that are, you know, the the, the big earners. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a blueprint that we're all trying to chase down. And to go back to your original question, I think your original question about, you know, is there envy or, you know, am I like these lads, how do, how do you ch- chase them down? And part of me is like, part of me feels that this Leinster team are only going to get better. Like, which is uh, as an Ulster man and seeing your team get the quarterfinals and semifinals, the odd final here or there, but always come up short, you know, always the, the bridesmaid as, as the slagging is up here. It's, it's hard to take. Like it is hard to take, and there's been money and time and effort put into the school system up here, but it's 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 going to take decades before we get to the le- the level that it is down in Dublin. So, um, yeah, there's a part of me that obviously likes to see these Irish players playing consistently well, and obviously that feeds massively into the national side. But I hate seeing Leicester win every week. <laughs> I did a column on this a couple of weeks ago, and I think there's a. There's a bit of tall poppy syndrome that goes on. I mean, Leinster have got so much so right, and they have best with this school system. And actually, that was there before the modern day Leinster. I saw Leo Cullen in the week was saying, "Well, nobody was complaining about this in the, in like the, the noughties when Leinster weren't winning everything." But actually, I mean, that was when I covered Irish rugby, and it was a big issue. Leinster was so underperforming; they had so much in their favour. They had such a great school system. They had these centrally contracted players. They had the huge demographic, and yet they kept they couldn't win. They couldn't win. You know, they kept on losing quarters and semi-finals in Europe. In fact, sometimes they didn't even get through. So the same conditions exist now as then. It's just that they've made them work for them. So I think you have to credit Leinster for somehow tapping into that incredible pyramid uh, and making it work. But they've always had these advantages. I would probably disagree with you because I've experienced the the RX side and from 2004-5 to when I retired. Like we were training at a school called Bray School, scrummaging in grass, 12 inches high, covered in mud. Like now there's it's the professionalism that has changed. Like, so yes, they had the school system, yes, they have still had plenty of money. They obviously have a lot better coaches in there as well, but the professionalism of the whole thing, like the RFU now have the high performance center. They have, you know, 3G pitches all over the place, um, state-of-the-art gym facilities. Like we trained in a marquee, like on the back of a hotel for like, I don't want to say a marquee. This thing was 20 meters by 10 meters, like, you know, full of um, pumped up rugby players looking to get rid of a bit of energy. So you can imagine um, some, of, some of the banter we had in there. So like it, it's it's changed significantly over over the years, and the more professionals become in Ireland, the bigger impact that's had on the on on the level of performance on the pitch. I mean, I think I think that I would argue that's tapping into what was already there. I mean, I can remember going to 
Black Rock College 20 years ago, and it was world-class facilities and other co- Newbridge College. So that has always been there. It sounds to me like the IRFU sort of shortchanged you there, Stephen, and put you out in the long grass with the national team. But um, yeah, we treat we treated the Black Rock at under 19s and under 21s, but then we stayed in a, a hotel up the road. It was like two stars, you get fed um soup and bread every day, like you know. It was, <laughs> <laughs> I know but, the other um, thing that rankled with some, I, I got into a Twitter spat with somebody who said, Oh, we had Leinster only occasionally play at the Aviva. Well, I totted it up. They played the last pool match at the Aviva. They played round of 16, 8 4 2 1. They played a big URC match over Christmas. They've got a playoff match there next week. They might have a semi final there. They play there way more than Ireland play. I mean, it's kind of Leinster, it's almost like Leinster's home ground now. I suspect they almost play as much there as the RDS. Yeah. And. The RDS, uh, as you uh, as you probably know, wouldn't be the state of the art facility, um, and, and we know that there's there's plans in place to um, regenerate the whole uh, of of the grounds there. But yeah, it, you know, like if you rock up to the RDS, and then you know the next week you rock up to the Aviva, it's a different mindset. It's this is a a national stadium playing in front of 40, 50,000, you know, all the TV crews are there. Like it's just, there's so much more significance behind it when you take the pitch at the Aviva than at Kingspan or at RDS or Thoman or, uh, you know, down in Galway, the sports ground. So it's a huge advantage. It's a, a huge advantage. And also it's a massive advantage because of the revenue that they, you know, make off the back of selling, what was the cheapest ticket? 75 euro to go and watch in a semi-final, which for me is absolutely ludicrous. It's ridiculous that, you know, the, the price of the tickets there for, for that. Um, and hopefully that's addressed going forward because, you know, to take a family of four and go for a bite of lunch, you're not going to get much change out of four or 500 euro. Yeah, Absolutely. I guess that um, you know when they when they get a crowd of almost um, oh, over forty five thousand for the game, they're probably unlikely to change the ticketing prices if they're managing to get the you know get get the money in. Um, but I, I'm quite interested by the you know by what you say about the professionalism of the of the schools. Um, I, I guess I, I think that where. We're, you know, in England, certainly they're beginning to realise that things are falling down a bit is with the academy system here, because those school academies or, or school programmes that you've got, um, particularly in Leinster, but I think elsewhere in, in Ireland as well, are definitely a step up on what um, on what's happening with the academies here. You know, we're, we're, we're beginning not there's beginning to be a real gap. I think with young players coming into the Premiership, I don't think that they're there in the same way that uh, that the young Irish players are. Yeah. Um, uh, like I, I probably agree with you on that, and I think over like take out the last three years, I think any but any player that I played with or against that played in the Premiership always told me that the Premiership was the holy grail of of club rugby, and that you know, how tough it was week in and week out and the amount of games and the amount of quality players and, um, you know, well, half the players that played in the Pro 14 wouldn't even, you know, make the 23 squad of a, a Worcester or whoever it may have been. And, and I think that is starting to change. I'm not sure if it's because of the addition of the South African teams, which has obviously helped the standard of, of the league, no end, and Benetton rugby, you know, playing a lot better uh, as well. But you know more about the school system than me in England. But here in Ireland, like you've maybe five or six of former players that represented Ireland, that represented the British and Irish Lions, are actually directors of rugby in these schools. Mm. Like they're in, they, they've experienced firsthand what it takes to be a professional rugby player. And yes, they're not out on the coaching paddock every day, you know, blowing a whistle, but they're in, they're getting paid a nice salary somebody like Sean Cronin is now in I think it's Terran Year in the club rugby as well and you look at uh, the, the club rugby here in Ireland in Division 1A which is the highest uh, level and, uh, and the teams in it you know the majority of those teams again from the club side 
are from Leinster. And there's a couple of Munster in there. And, you know, the Ulster ones are 1B, 2A, 2B. And again, Connacht, you know, 2B, 2C, you know, all the club teams. So they're not only, Leinster are not only dominating the school side of things, they're also dominating the the, the, the club rugby side of things as well. So, um, yeah, it, it's 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 something that's a model that's working really, really well. And um, the other thing is like with the school system, it, it feels like, yes, there's this rivalry. We, we know like uh, a friend of mine, a guy called Chris Sylvester, his brother is obviously one of the, the, the main guys at Saracens. And, you know, he went to Black Rock College and they were over um, for the, the England game, but the, the school's cup final was on and his old school, um, Black Rock was playing in the final against I can't remember who it was and like he went to the he, he would there was a the Legends game the Irish Legends game one was on on the Friday night he would rather have went to the schools game with his Black Rock College tie on and his uh, you know all his colours and like and he's you know pushing on 60 like you know these are people that live and breathe the school religion mm. uh, the rugby religion and they love to see their school do well. And like, you know, he flew in from Bermuda, like, you know, <laughs> and he wanted to go and see Black Rock College. Um, so it just shows you that, you know, even through the years, the amount of support that um, the school system gets down in, in, in Dublin is massive. And obviously that that helps, uh, you know, filter into the, the, the senior side in Leinster. And um, how do we all get there? You know, that's the magic question. How, how does everybody else play the catch up? And uh, uh, because up in Belfast, you know, you've Campbell, Methody, and then uh, Inst, you know, three schools that every year you could maybe select 75% of the academy players from. And, and they all know that. Schools, Stephen? What's that? Sorry. And they all private schools. Those... Yeah, correct. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and it's obviously private school driven in, in Dublin. Um, yeah, certainly I mean, is. We, you know, I, li- I live in Bristol. We've got the same thing here. Um, you know, Gerbin Dempsey is in charge of rugby at one of the schools here, just appointed. Colston's, I think. Uh, yeah, Colston's. Um, and um, Clifton College have Matt Salter, who's a relatively recent Bristol captain, and Danny Grucock running <laughs> running their rugby. You don't get those guys at Bass Street Comprehensive. That ain't going to happen. Yeah. So, so the, the gaps in the educational structure here in terms of pure rugby, absolutely massive. Absolutely massive. There are a couple of state schools in the West Country that take rugby seriously, but that's it. And while, while, the, um, while the dividends you're getting from that uh, immediately are probably quite high, what that says for rugby as a popular participation sport for young people going forward is another question entirely because we are seeing so many club games being handed walkovers, you know, people yeah, yeah. aside. There's all sorts of hassles. We've done quite a bit of that stuff in the rugby paper. So I think uh, while while it's very, very impressive and what you say about Leinster, that's an extremely impressive setup, but how sustainable it is for rugby in the wider context, not so sure. Yeah. Well, the wider context is, is something, you know, that is the remit of the rugby unions. That is what their remit is. You know, the uh, the continuation of the game and the flourishing of the game. And if they're not investing in state schools, you, you've got to ask why. You know, why aren't they doing what Australia did with, you know, the AFL did in Australia with Aussie rules, taking the sport in lock, stock and barrel. You know, everything, coaches, working out the fixture lists, doing the coaching, et cetera, et cetera, putting programs in. That is what the only way that this is going to get redressed. Now, these unions at the moment are, all, you know, you look at the RFU, it's, it's financial mismanagement is something else. And so it's got no money to do this, but it has had money to do it in the past and it ought to be doing it. Uh, it ought to have done it. And it certainly ought to be aiming to do it and very, very quickly. And probably the same. I mean, the IRFU has been extremely well run and is currently financially in, you know, compared to uh, to the other nations in the, you know, in the, the other home nations is in a very good position financially. So it does have, um, you know, the wherewithal to be able to put something like that in place. Stephen, 
Can I ask, and this is more thinking on a, an international perspective then, and we've spoken about um, the Leinster Ireland uh, carryover several times on this podcast. What model do you think benefits the Ireland national team the most? Because everyone's saying, okay, these Leinster players, they know that they know each other so well. Um, in terms of sustainability, do you think that's what's going to keep Ireland being the superpower they are today? It's a good question because obviously we work a good bit with Tom Shanklin and with the debacle of you know Welsh rugby over the last season or two, he almost thinks that you know the Welsh rugby union should invest have much more heavily in one of the um, regions and make it really competitive, and then you know use the other one or two or three, however many it may be, to have more of the academy players coming through and and. Trying to get um, trying to get the the level up, but obviously over the next five to ten years, not over the next two, and like he thinks, obviously that would help massively as well when you then step into an international jersey. So that's somebody who I think probably sees Leinster week in and week out, winning and winning really well and and doing well in all the competitions, and then that filtering through to the national squad, but. As an Ulster player and a former Ulster player, and seeing you know these Leinster players playing week out, week in and week out, if there's a 50-50 call and you know in the back row position, am I not going to get it because the Leinster players play more consistently with each other? So you know he's going to get the nod ahead of me. There always used to be this back in the day with Declan Kidney and the Munster players. We always used to hear this coming out of the camp. Oh yeah, you know when it comes to scrum half. Uh, Peter Stringer is always going to get the nod because of the Munster thing, and now it's changed to the Leinster <laughs> thing. So, um, and even look at when the last forward, the last international forward to be capped uh, by Ireland, an Ulster player I'm talking about was Ian Henderson in 2012. So, like, <laughs> you know, over a decade for an Ulster forward to get capped by Ireland. I know Tom Stewart might be in the reckoning over the next couple of years. Who knows? We'll wait and see. But there's been no doubt that there'll be another Leinster hooker that comes in and plays really well and gets loads of minutes in the URC. And all of a sudden, he, he might get catapulted straight into the national squad. And then, you know, the, the Tom Stewart's or whoever might be spat back out again and find themselves further and further down the pecking order. So, as much as it's really beneficial to Irish rugby, is it beneficial to the other three provinces? They would probably argue that it's not. Mm. Um, and me personally, I love to see Irish rugby play well. So at the minute, I'm like, yeah, it is a good thing because it's given us a chance here to win a Rugby World Cup. It's given us a chance here to get through to a semi-final where we've never been before and create a bit of history. But... I don't go to bed at night thinking about how Ulster rugby can, you know, get a few more players into the Irish setup. I'm like everybody else and think about how Ireland can go win a World Cup. And if that's having more Leinster players in the team, then, you know, if that's the way it is at the minute. I'm really concerned about this idea of constantly narrowing the base. I mean, yeah. Tom, I, I hear what Thomas said, but, you know, I mean, remember, you know, that Wales used to have about, you know, 10 very strong club sides with fantastic traditions and the base got narrowed to four. And since that, that, uh, and, you know, sort of pseudo re regions um, uh, built up, the, the Irish provinces have always been there as, as rugby entities. This was created and it's been a disaster. It's been, you know, I mean, apart from during the Gatland years where they did actually have that sort of club Wales thing. Uh, but I'm 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 very very uh, unsure about the shrinking base always being the thing. And there's just one other thing here as well. I think that the reigning European champions are La Rochelle, <laughs> 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 and I think that they have a a a pretty good chance uh, of um, they're going to have to play out of their skins in order to do it. But uh, I think they've got they've certainly in with a chance of winning. I know I said that about Toulouse this last weekend and they didn't get it right, but um, there we go. Can, can I just add, I was fascinated to hear Stephen's comments there because I remember covering Ireland throughout the noughties and there was a period from about 2000, 2003, there's no doubt in my mind that David Humphreys 
was playing better than a, a young Ronan O'Gara. And I was absolutely gobsmacked that there was all this debate. And eventually Ronan won it. The Munster faction won it. The, the sort of Dublin press and Munster press won that argument. But I used to come over, I'd be amazed. David would make one mistake in a match and it would be absolutely jumped on. Roger would make two or three mistakes and we're totally ignored. And it, it was, as he was saying, it's, it's, you, you rely too much on that preeminent team. Munster were the team that were doing great in Europe. Peter Stringer was the scrum half. Rog had to be the starting 10. And David Humphreys missed out on a lot of caps and starts there. And yes, Rog eventually became a very great player, but I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And as an Englishman diving in, and, and Mark Seuss used to come over with me, we'd arrive in Dublin, and we couldn't believe how strong that that, that sort of um, media crusade to, to keep Rog as the starting 10 was. Uh, and it's interesting your insight there. That, that's part of the part of the argument, I think. There's an important there's an important uh, thing we should mention here that Humphreys uh, did pretty well when Warren Gatlin was coaching Ireland, but Warren confessed in his autobiography, which I wrote, um, that he uh, that he used to help Humphreys along by sprinkling holy water on his boots. Now that's a terrible thing to say, isn't it? Uh, I I doesn't don't, even mean that. I don't, I don't want to get too sectarian about this, Stephen. But do you have an immediate reaction to such a terrible, terrible act of? Well, I uh, describe it. Yeah, I get on very well with both uh, um and uh, Raj. Uh, Raj actually messaged me there a couple of weeks ago. I uh, just had a bit of a yarn by a text, and I play a bit of golf with David, so I, I would see him quite regularly. Um, and I think, like, you could even say, Chris, about not just the David Humphreys Ronan O'Gara situation, the Johnny Sexton Ronan O'Gara situation as well, because that sort of didn't change until Declan Kidney left. Yeah. Because even at the 2011 Rugby World Cup, like, it was tit for tat, and yeah. mm. of course it was Rog. It was Rog who started against Wales in that quarter final, and everybody thought it should have been Johnny because Johnny had started one or two of the other games and played really, really well. Um, but then when it yeah. came, yeah. when it came to the crunch in a quarter final in a big moment, I suppose, like as a co- if I was a coach, you would lean on the person that you think you can rely on. In the big moments, and and like Decky did that numerous times with Rods, and he, he never let him down. So, uh, yeah, uh, like Humph won seventy four caps for Ireland, and um, I say I, always, I I had to retire early because I made all his bloody tackles for him um, <laughs> at Ulster. But uh, yeah, he's um, he was a, he was a quality operator, and and I I loved playing with him. He's such a flair player, like in. Um, at times, Ireland seemed to function a lot better with that style of out half, you know, back in the noughties. Just going back to something earlier you were saying, Stephen, um, well, the conversation we were having about whether the Leinster superiority feeds well into Ireland rugby. I think what you were suggesting then is, although the Ireland well-oiled machine, which is spoken about so much, is obviously in as good a place as it's ever been as a result of the system that feeds into it. There are probably individuals at the other provinces who, on merit, could be making those match day 23s and aren't. So, I don't know, to, to the English fan who maybe doesn't follow it quite as closely as you do, give a few names that you think would be worthy of inclusion in this already vastly superior Ireland squad. There's a few people, obviously, as well, that I've just been unlucky. So, like, I think somebody like Peter O'Mahony has been. I think ever since he captained the Lions in the first test and didn't play particularly well and then sort of lost a little bit of form after that, everybody's been calling for his head for the last, what, it was 2017, five, six years. And there's been so many players that have, you know, had the opportunity to jump into his boots. And then so the likes of, I think it was Gavin Coombs there two years ago. He was playing unbelievable rugby for Munster. Then he got he got a virus and he got sick. And like he was lined up to play in the autumn internationals against the the bigger nations, whoever they were back then, and then that didn't happen. And all of a sudden, I think it was maybe Pete man of the match against the All Blacks, and then like you know he, he straight back in there and has been ever since. And 
somebody like Pete always, you know, always has big, big games against the big sides. Um, and he's a he's a good. You'd rather be playing with him than against him. Um, week in and week out. To pull names, let me see. John Cooney would be one, wouldn't he? Yeah, like I, I'm not sure. I not, think maybe not now, John... but but there was a spell, wasn't there, when he was playing the house down week on week in pretty big matches. Yeah, but if you take out his goal kicking, you know, like that ninety percent goal kicking accuracy, is he as good a scrum half as the other couple of lads? I think you know somebody like Craig Casey, leapfrog maybe two or three guys just for having a, a couple of brilliant performances with Monster. But it's it's maybe not just the way he plays. I think it's actually his personality as well, and what he feeds into the national side. Um, I'm just trying to think of a couple of players that maybe could feel hard done by that just because they play for a different province. Um, you know that they're they're left out. Um, let me see. Did, Stuart did, did McCluskey they... over the Stuart oh. McCluskey over the years, like Stuart McCluskey only had what two caps to his name until the start of last autumn internationals. Um, Bundy Jacob Stockdale. Sorry, Jacob Stockdale. I mean, he had had he had, he's had injury problems. He's had problems, but he was such a quality player for that eighteen months. Do you not back that sort of player like you back Peter Romani, who who had yeah. you know a poor match in that that test. But you know his quality, so you stick with him. I thought Stockdale was brilliant for 18 months, and I would just back him until he comes back to form. Yeah, I'm not so sure. I obviously watch him every single minute of every single week, <laughs> and he has really struggled, like massively struggled in the URC. And it's only been the last couple of games that he's managed to get his hands on the ball. I think he scored two tries all season as a winger. Um so, like, he, he's struggling to find that, regain that form from 2018. Um, like, props like um, Buckley, the loose head prop for Connett. Like, he is an incredible scrummager, brilliant every single week, really durable. Um, but because he's playing for Connett and not could probably getting the results, then he's, yeah. like, just almost forgotten about um, would Alton Delan have, have fallen into that category? Um, yeah, yep. because he yep. looked a really good player to me. For you know, I mean, he was an eye catching player, and you sort of thought at the time, well, if that guy was down in Dublin, and some people have gone to Dublin, I guess maybe for this for this reason. Um, yeah, um, you know, then not all of Leinster are, are Dublin school produced, are they? Um, People have moved there, but but Delan was one of those eye catching players, I thought, and and maybe didn't get the crack he would have done if he'd been playing in Dublin. Yeah, and again, it's it's like when I think back about it, it's it's difficult for me to answer because I was always sort of one of the first names on the team sheet, and like so, I was never really on the periphery, or you know, wasn't really being dropped like uh, 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 that often, so. I always felt secure and I feel like there was maybe only 25 lads that that happened with where you know, I, I don't think that should ever be the case. And I think that's where maybe we went wrong a bit back then was that we had, you know, five or six senior players, myself included, that sat out training Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then played up, turned up and played a captain's run and then played on a Saturday just because oh. we were senior players. So you took your sofa to training with you, did you? <laughs> I was usually in the jacuzzi. <laughs> <laughs> Times are hard. Times are hard. We're about nearly, we're 35 minutes into this episode and we've done nothing that was on my agenda so far. Um, so <laughs> I reckon we should tick at least one thing off the list, Stephen, by doing your random rugby 15, which is the 15 quick part question section, if that sounds good with you. Um, no problem. Awesome. Let's get going. Nickname. Um, I have two. Um, there's a guy called Graham Steadman who was the defence coach for Scotland for a while, Ireland for a while. I think he was at Cardiff as well, uh, rugby league guy. And he nicknamed me Fez. So like all the Irish guys would have called me Fez. And then my younger days at Ulster, it was Horse, a guy called Neil Best, the back grower. 
remember smashing Lottie De Kiri in a um, uh, Autumn International. Um, he started the nickname Horse, and then that stuck with me for a number of years. So, uh, yeah, two two nicknames. <laughs> Best rugby memory. Uh, winning Grand Slam 2009. Most embarrassing rugby memory. I was having to think about this, Ollie, and I don't really have an embarrassing one. Um, like, I was sitting at the bottom of a rock against Ulster versus Leinster. That's not, this isn't really embarrassing, but um, Leo Cullen was playing, and myself and Neil Best, and Neil Best grabbed Leo Cullen in a head ro- headlock and asked him what his mum got him for Christmas. It was like we were playing on Boxing Day, and he kept like grabbing him harder and harder and harder. He's going, what did your mummy get you for Christmas? What did your mummy get you for Christmas? Come on, tell me, tell me. And I was just like laughing my leg off, and like Leo Cullen looked quite like embarrassed <laughs> so uh yeah no no embarrassing stories for me really did he answer the question um i think he did yeah i can't remember what it was <laughs> yeah colin if you're listening what did your mom get you for christmas that year I want to short socks. <laughs> yeah classic um pre-game tune um darude sandstorm nice post-game meal Pizza. Best player you've played against? Um, this changes all the time, but I'm going to go for... Um, going to go for... Come back to me on that one. Yeah, I will. Best player you've played with? Paul O'Connell. Favourite player right now? Again, it's changing all the time. After seeing La Rochelle, the weekend it changed from the day before. Um, I'm gonna go with just because he sort of changed the way the back row has played over the last couple of seasons. Gonna go with Keelan Doris. Nice. Who did it change to from the La Rochelle team? On was it Aldrich? Uh, well, Gregory Aldrich playing playing class again because he he sort of went through a bit of a twelve month spell there where he hasn't been playing particularly great. I'm not sure if teams are figuring him out or he's been carrying a bit of an injury or, or what it's been, but he hasn't been the same dynamic player, but he, he played very well again there on, on Sunday. He did. Rugby idol. Jonah Lumu. Best player you've played against. Um, <laughs> Jerome Kino. Nice. Yeah. Who does it change yeah. between? Um, <laughs> Well, actually, Paul O'Connell as well. He played against him with Munster and had some ding-dong battles against Paulie. Uh, just so much respect for Paul. Like We trained a lot together as well, especially in the gym. Pushed each other on massively. Obviously, he was stronger in some exercises than me and vice versa. And um, We always paired up with each other just to drive each other on. And he would have been like, not a, not a mentor, but... He, a lot of respect between the both of us. And yeah, even even now, like caught up with him in Rome when I was over for the Six Nations game. Student had a yarn for half an hour, just chit-chatting and having a bit of crack. And um, yeah, he's uh, he's such a, a pleasant, lovely guy. And then as soon as he crosses the whitewash, he turns into his <laughs> nickname, Psycho. So uh, he's, uh, he's a good bloke. Favourite stadium? Uh, Principality. Favorite gym exercise? Sofa moving. Anything upper, anything upper body. <laughs> Lower body's absolutely wrecked now. I can barely even do a body with squat. But um, if it was the picks, one probably just bench, barbell bench. Occupation if rugby didn't exist. Probably on a building site somewhere. <laughs> um, I was did a little bit of manual labour when I was younger, so. Probably would have got into some sort of trade. Um, I wish I had it done. I'd probably be earning more money now than I ever would be. <laughs> <laughs> Superstitions? None. Rugby law you would change? I would like to have extra time or like added on time. So like even watching the Liverpool game there against Spurs and seeing the drama in the last five or six minutes and actually knowing that 
you know, when the 80 minutes are up, you might have another four to six minutes or whatever it may be to try and close out a game. And I think it would actually help with a lot of the slow play that we actually see around scrums and everything else. So have a fourth official or some other guy in the, in the box having a look at with, beside the TMO and saying, oh, there's five minutes injury time. And it's just, you know, as a player, you see the clock tick down to 80 minutes and to have it in the back of your head that you still had a chance with the 80 minutes gone on the clock, but there was an extra four, five, or, you know, you get the five and there's another long play that could last two minutes. I think that would not only be good for the players, but also for the fans and they attract more people to the sport as well when you have, you know, really close encounters and in, in, in extra time. I completely with you on that. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Absolutely. Where's the district? Would it still be after the five minutes added time, kick the ball out, or would it be like in football, the ref sort of arbitrarily blows his whistle to say full time? Because that could then. No, I think it would. Yeah, I think the players would would ultimately determine when the game is is ends. Like, can't get the 85 and then he just blows the whistle and they're about to score a try. So I think. If the ball goes out of play or there's a knock on or, yeah, um, if, if a team's in control. And again, I think, you know, way back, you should just be able to sandbag, 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 waste two minutes and then kick the ball out. You know, that needs to be penalised and we need to, um, you know, work out ways of of making it more exciting come the tail end of the game where I think specifically rugby union, it almost peters out towards the end of a game. And, Watching the football over, the, especially over this weekend, like it's been the last ten minutes of the matches have been class, really enjoyable. So for me, that's just a way of maybe enhancing the product. The the the, the, le- the less you know about the the the, the timing, the, the more you have to keep playing. You have to keep playing. So, yeah. no, I, I mean, I think that's a really that's, a really that's, that's the best we've had, isn't it? In about sixteen, that's, a, that's, that's a after that, that should be introduced next season. Somebody's been arguing about this for years, Brendan. If only you read what I wrote. I think actually I do. I do remember you mentioning it once, actually, Chris. <laughs> I mean, you're not alone in not reading this rubbish, but um, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, best thing about working in rugby? It used to be travel. I always used to love jumping on a flight and going traveling, but since then, you know, a couple of years after I retired, Travel then became a bit of a annoying, and I suppose it is annoying for everybody when you know COVID and everything else hit, and it just became a, a you know pain in the backside. Um, but I think it's I still get a buzz out of it. People always ask me, "Oh, why do you still you know commentate and work in the rugby?" And like as I said, I'm able to remember back to specific games and pick bits out of it, and like the buzz that it gave me when I played, of course, it doesn't reach the same heights working in it now and covering a lot of the matches. But you know, when Ulster travelled down to the Viva Stadium for the last 16 in the, the Heineken Champions Cup, there was a part of me that felt Ulster could get a result. And that's the way the players felt. And you know that's the way they felt in the change room as well, because I've obviously been there. So like I got a bit of a kick out of that, a bit of a buzz out of that. And you know, sometimes I drive up the road from a game and I get into the house and I'm not able to sleep straight away. And why is that? It's because you've got a little bit of a, the adrenaline from the match and, um, you know, you're not able to switch off. And obviously you speak to a lot of rugby players or um, sports men or women that, you know, it's difficult to sleep after, you know, huge games. So, uh, yes, it's it's the buzz that, uh, of the big occasion that keeps us all in a day. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Um We'll wrap that up there and let's actually look at the semi-finals very quickly and what happened because I did want to do that. Um, so, Stephen, you weren't here, but I'm trying to remember our predictions from last week. We all predicted La Rochelle and then half of us predicted Leinster, half of us predicted Toulouse. Um, Nick, let's start in reverse order. So let's go with La Rochelle. That's pretty much what we all expected, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And you talk about atmospheres in grounds. I mean, the atmosphere in Bordeaux was absolutely, you know, buzzing. It was electric. And um, La Rochelle had wrapped it up pretty well, you know, by um, 10 minutes into the second half. I think it was uh, it was done and dusted, really. I thought that he sh- showed, you know, I mean, there was a lot of talk about Bottier before the, the game and how influential he was. 
uh, or has been. And then this guy, Budahent, comes on and it's almost a seamless transition. You know, uh, their, their big men all stood up and we saw one or two uh, guys, certainly that I didn't really know this, uh, the center, Sutani, who, who came through and had a big game. Pastoy, the fly half, um, you know, appears to be more and more uh, in control. And Kerbalo is, um, you know, always was, you know, when he was playing for the Chiefs in in, uh, in New Zealand, he was always a, a, an outstanding scrum half and really didn't get a look in just because they've got so many of them. But he's um, he's some player. So, you know, they're, uh, you know, for me, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're definitely a, um, a significant chance uh, at, uh, at the Aviva. Brendan, you like these sorts of questions. Tawira Kerbalo, he scored two in the quarters, two in the semis, and Austin Healy said he's the best. He either said the best nine in the world not playing international rugby or the best player in the world not playing international rugby. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, he said one of those two, didn't he? I mean, Australian qualified because he's born in Melbourne. Yeah. Could unquestionably get into the, the Australia squad if Eddie Jones came phoning. And, and why not? He's I think he's five years out of the All Blacks team. Um, I don't particularly like all the switching, but if the law is there, um, yes, I would think Eddie Jones would make a call. I mean, I was trying to establish if he's also French qualified, because he's had five years residence, but I don't think he can do that because you can't qualify on residence if you've already played for another test team. It can only be if you've got that heritage qualification. But he had a fantastic match, yeah. I was definitely thinking one thing, though. Good as La Rochelle are, if Mike Adamson had seen the knock-on in the build-up to their winning try against Gloucester, it, Gloucester would have won that match. So they're not unbeatable by any stretch of imagination. And Gloucester gave us the template as to how to move that pack around. And Leinster would have noticed that. Leinster, with their their, their fluid A game, especially with um, uh, you know the, 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 the quick moving of the ball from forwards to backs, they, they will know how to take on La Rochelle, especially after last year as well. So I think a lot of homework will be done. And I think you'll see a supercharged Leinster playing a quicker tempo than even they normally play at. It'll be interesting to see what La Rochelle do on the bench, won't it? I mean, to, to lose, it's rugby and these things happen, but to lose really suffered by having a 6-2 split on the bench. You can see why they've done it, um, because going 80 minutes against a Leinster side playing at the tempo they do, they might, they might need to drag a couple of big forwards off the bench. But, you know, Dupont... You know, having a move out of nine, the replacement. What an odd move! What an odd move! The, 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 nine. Well, it, I, I can't remember who else they had hanging around on the bench, but it was um, you know they obviously thought that was the way forward. The the the, the scrum half, no, none of us knew, made a couple of early mistakes, which cost which cost points. But as soon as as soon as I think Dupont, an extraordinary player, as we keep on saying, but as soon as you took him out of that um, out of that optimum position. Because of the six-two split on the bench, it can, that can be the only reason. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if La Rochelle take the same risk against Leinster. Because if they get an injury in the wrong place, that could really stuff them. Stephen, did the Leinster we saw obviously? Well, we previewed this um, last week, and first of all, we were saying it's going to be an absolute classic, closer than last year, and it potentially didn't necessarily live up to that bill. But part of the reason it didn't is one to lose in ill discipline, but to Leinster's defence. You obviously look at the stats and you wouldn't think that it was a Leinster 20-point win. Is that all the more reason for Leinster not to fear La Rochelle, given that they've dealt with a, back, a pack every bit as fit and the Skeletons, the Aldrichs, the Bottiers, the Dantes, if they're fit, aren't necessarily to be feared? Um, I think La Rochelle are, are a differently coached team. I think they will pose different threats to this Leinster side. Yes, they have the the size, the power, the athleticism in some of their players, but I think they're better coached. You look, everybody talked about before the game, how good that Toulouse are in the transition from turnover ball and, you know, you know they can cut you to ribbons. It was actually the other way around, where when, you know, the first few minutes of the game, Toulouse were hammering their line, turnover, whole length of the pitch, Ross, <laughs> Ross Byrne knocks over a penalty, 3-0, couple of minutes later, hammering the ground, turnover nearly the length of the pitch. Was it 6-0 and then, or whatever it was. And, you know, when Toulouse made a mistake, <clears throat> it seemed to be a big mistake. It cost them. And I think, yes, La Rochelle will make a number of mistakes in the game. 
but they won't be glaringly obvious, like Ramos getting yellow carded and Leinster scoring three tries, whatever it was when he was off, and the same with Nettie or whoever it was to get yellow carded and scoring another try. I, I just don't think Ronan O'Gara's side will do that. I, I just think they will back their drift defence. They will use the touchline. They will, you know, retreat when they need to, get into scramble mode, you know, go out and make the big hits, and then when they have the ball, be a bit more... I, I, I think... Tolu, I don't know what you guys think, but I was I wasn't impressed with Toulouse at all. I'm no, not sure if it really, was if it really was the flat. occasion or what it was, but like when I was looking through their pack, I was going, "Geez, they have some quality operators here. They're going to turn it on." Like the, the bookmakers or something had it like ten points, and I was like, "No way, this game's going to be you know really tight." And for me, I thought Lancer could have won by more. I agree with you. You know, I mean, I, I thought that uh, one of the areas which uh, was a clear. Um, uh, clean out for uh, for Leinster was the back row. Um, you know, Doris and Van der Fleer were and Conan. They were they were all outstanding, and they hustled uh, that Toulouse uh, back row out of the game. Willis played quite well, but um, uh, Cross and Flamont, uh, two you know French internationals, uh, barely showed in the game, mm. and. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, the the bench thing was uh, was was it's always a gamble six two, and it and it backfired this time. But the the scrum half who came on Grau uh, looked very very nervous. You know, I mean, he made he he made some really bad mistakes, and they also you know their discipline. You know, the Ramos, uh, um, you know, handout was you know was gratuitous really, and I'm not sure that they didn't have it covered. Um, so, you know, that cost them dearly. And then the netty thing was, you know, was sort of was a bit of an odd one. But, um, you know, the one thing that you say about Leinster is you give them an opportunity. You know, they kicked it to the corner and they scored and they scored with ease. I think the warning Toulouse are an elite side and, and, they, and they shouldn't be thinking like this. But it seemed to me that as soon as Dupont was not doing what he does every week for them, that they became they 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 were adrift. They were they were a bit all at sea, really. I don't I I don't think they adjusted to that substitution uh, very well at all. And it, it's understandable if you've got a player who's absolutely the definition of world class, and he's I mean, you never see the bloke play poorly, and is we all know how much the French the, the you know the French in general. Um, how much importance they invest in the scrum half. Everything comes off the scrum half uh, and it has done for donkey's years. You know, there aren't that many famous French outside arts. There are as many famous French scrum halves as you can shake a stick at. Um, you know, they depend on him enormously. And why wouldn't you, a player at that standard? But he's not exerting the same kind of control where he ended up as a sort of floating 10 as he does at nine when he's absolutely at the heart of it and he's running all those flanker support angles off the base and all that kind of stuff. And that all that all went and they did they couldn't adjust. And the other fact is Tamak isn't a good 12. So you what you end up with is a nine, young inexperienced nine who looked out of his league, I thought. You've got a world-class, the world-class nine, who's a very good 10, but he's not getting involved with the game like he should because he's not right there at the coalface. And you've got a world-class 10 playing pretty averagely at 12. So it's a whole thing just diminished immediately. They made that change. But I, I think the warning signs were there in the quarterfinal. Sharks outplayed Toulouse in the, in the first half, down in Toulouse, and it required, you know, a sort of performance from the ages from Toulouse to rescue themselves in the second half in the sun with the home crowd. And I don't care who you are, you, you can't keep on doing that kind of stuff. You know, we get used to it, but you, you can't go to the well endlessly and it just wasn't there for Toulouse it just wasn't there on the day no it wasn't it's almost like you look at you know if you put Gibson Park at 10 and then you put Ross Byrne at 12 and you went well away you go lads play against you know the Toulouse team in a Heineken Champions Cup semi-final you can be damn sure that they wouldn't function as as well And that's exactly what it looked like. I totally agree with you. I thought Toulouse in the opening 10 minutes, actually, I went, geez, they've got a bit of purpose about them here. You know, DuPont was running the back against the green, a couple of nice fans, a couple of offloads. Um, Aldegary was getting into the game and you know, running hard lines. I think it was Willis before their try with, you know, broke off the tackle and Gaddy and got in and then set up to get in the corner. I was like, geez, a bit of purpose about them, the ball's being zipped. And then all of a sudden, DuPont went to 10 and, 
I heard Draco chatting about the ruck speed, and I totally agree with you. I think the back row had an absolute field day for 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 Leinster. The ruck speed was was absolutely ridiculous, and um, you can't, as you rightly said, you know, keep going on in that fashion in that way and expect to, you know, have a miracle final twenty minutes and and, and get a get a result, especially against a team like Leinster. Yeah. Stephen, before you go, I've just got, I know you need to go, I've just got one more question for you, and that's um, Jack Conan, because he was obviously British Lion back in 21. He was the Ireland eight-shirt holder, and then Caden Doris came along, and that now no longer seems to be the case. But what do you make of his response to that in the past 12 months? And do you think with the performances he put in in the Six Nations and for Leinster since, he's now pushing for a starting back row spot and... I guess if the World Cup final was tomorrow, what would your Irish back row be? Yeah, I was really impressed with them uh, yesterday. I have been impressed with them for the last couple of months. Um, and again, was there a loss of form? I don't think there was. I just think Pete O'Mahony sort of found a bit of form, like, and because of his line-out prowess and how good he is defensively as well, um, he's so good at you know over the ball turnovers. Um, where Jack sort of gives you something a little bit different. The problem that Andy Farrell has is that Keelan Dora seems to play a hell of a lot better with the number eight jersey on his back for Ireland than he does with the number six jersey. Um, and there's there's no doubt when Keelan Doris is playing to the best of his ability and Jack Conan's playing to the best of his ability, that Keelan Doris is marginally better um, at in this at the current um, time. So. Do you try and get both of them onto the pitch, and you, you know, have the conversation that, you know, guys, your roles. Like I, I played number eight the whole way through under schools, the whole way through to um, international rugby, but I couldn't get in ahead of Jamie Heaslip, so I had to shift myself to number six role, which then I really enjoyed and started to flourish in and learned more about the the, the role and, and and what it entailed, and and maybe. That's you know, there's going to have to be a bit, a bit of a gentleman's agreement between Jack Conan and Gillan Doris to, to make sure that they both are on the pitch because they are ridiculous athletes. Like Jack Conan is a huge man, huge, massive. Um, when you're playing against South Africa in a World Cup quarterfinal in France, I think I would prefer to have him in a, starting in a back row just to give you that little bit more of a of, of an oomph. So, yeah, this is the thing though. He has to keep it going now. You know, Jack has to be one of the best players in the pitch in the URC quarter or semi-final and final and in the Champions Cup final. He has to be doing that because if he has one bad game, then all of a sudden Andy Farrell's going, right, well, you played brilliant one week, dropped off the next. Well, you don't get that with Keelan Doris. You do not get that with Josh van der Fleer. And consistently over the last couple of years in the big games, you don't get that with Peter either. So, you know, this is a challenge for, for you know, Jack Conan that he's able to, um, mix it for you know the business end of the season here and show that he is a a, a world class British and Irish Lions starting number eight, like you said. And, and what happens, Stephen, if Ryan Baird continues to go like that, and Andy Farrell suddenly thinks, well, I wouldn't mind him and Tyburn in the same pack. Yeah, that's it's a good question. I think I think Ryan Baird's really raw. I think he. I think he sort of runs around with his hair on fire sometimes. And uh, an old Eddie O'Sullivan quote, you know, that, you know, do, do your specific role and do it really well. And, you know, when you get the opportunity to light somebody up or you get the opportunity to run through somebody or give that offload, that you make it happen. And if you watch a lot of the games, Ram Baird fizzles out especially in the last half an hour of games, he fizzles out. And that's why he's a good bench player as well, to come on and, and really have an impact because he is, you know, he is the, the definition of fast twitch fiber, um, you know, athlete. He, he, he has an abundance. So, um, yeah, a lot of the games, you, you'll see him have a, a crack and open in 20 minutes and then he sort of just fades out of the game. Um, and as you guys know at international rugby, you, you, that that can't be happening. But he's a young guy. He's a young guy, and he's you know he can put a hell of a lot more muscle on that frame as well, and and um, you know learn a lot. So yeah, Ryan Baird will certainly hopefully be in the the World Cup squad, but I'm not sure he'll be in that starting berth just yet. Stephen, I'll let you go. Can I just get a Champions Cup final winner from you, please? Yeah, I think. Uh... 
I'm going to have to go with Leinster. If it wasn't in the Aviva Stadium, I probably would go La Rochelle. Um, but I think just the home advantage, the run-in that they've had, last 16, quarterfinal, semifinal, final. Um, Johnny Sexton is obviously not going to play another game for Leinster. It'd be great for him to share holding the, the lifting the cup. Um, and I think overall this season, I know La Rochelle and Ronald Garrow might disagree. They might just deserve it, in my opinion. But we'll wait and see. And it's it's a final uh, any given day. Um, but yeah, fingers crossed Leinster can do it and, and keep Irish rugby on a, on a bit of a high leading towards this rugby World Cup. Awesome. Chaps, I'll get your predictions a couple of weeks later because it is, a, it is a while away and we've fallen foul of early predictions beforehand. Stephen, that was great. Thanks, Thank guys. You so much for joining us. Thanks, big fella. Cheers, Nick. Thanks very much. Cheers, Thanks, Ollie. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Rugby Paper Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use and recommend the show to your friends. The Rugby Paper is available to buy every Sunday. And to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe to our print, digital and online options at therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. That's therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions to get all our content for as little as 14p per day.